0: Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers and scholars to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. My guest today is Diane Luce. Diane has been working in the field of McCarthy Studies since it first emerged. She is a founding member and past president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. Together with Edwin Arnold, she has edited two collections of articles on McCarthy, and she is the author of Reading the World, Cormac McCarthy's Tennessee Period, published 2009. In the past decade, she has been writing a two-volume study based on archival research of McCarthy's writing life at Random House, several portions of which have appeared as articles in Resources for American Literary Study, and the Cormac McCarthy Journal. Luce is also interested in the ways which McCarthy's interest in visual art informs his imagery, and she's published articles on this in Blood Meridian and The Road. Her most recent article is Creativity, Madness, and the Light that Dances Deep in the Poncha Train, Glimpses of the Passenger from Cormac McCarthy's 1980 Correspondence in the Cormac McCarthy Journal. She holds faculty emeritus status from Midlands Technical College in Columbia, South Carolina. Diane, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Scott. I'm so glad to be with you.
0: Can you tell us how you came to discover McCarthy? I know that you're one of the OGs, as the kids have it, or (laughs) the kids who are probably now in their middle 20s have it. uh, But how did you come to discover McCarthy?
1: I first heard about him when I was in graduate school. Um, I heard about him from Edwin Arnold, who was a fellow graduate student with me. Both of us were studying the work of William Faulkner, writing dissertations on Faulkner. And as you well know, Faulkner is very widely written about. Um, Even when we were in graduate school, it was a very, very crowded field. And our mentor had started working on Faulkner when he was in graduate school. And when Faulkner was still alive, still working, and so he had been able to really contribute to developing that field, to doing foundational work in that field. And so I thought I would like to find a younger writer to work on in addition to Faulkner. And um, Chip Arnold suggested that I look at Cormac McCarthy. He had already been reading him. And I was having difficulty finding any books by McCarthy, but right. I did find *Child of God*, so that was the first one that I read, and I said, "Oh my God!" <laughs> <laughs> but I also said, "I have to keep reading this writer." Um, I w- I was already hooked, and then Shelby Foot also told me to read McCarthy. So,
0: and Foot was an early supporter of McCarthy. I think since from the Orchard Keeper on, right? He's he talked about him and promoted him when he yes, could. Yes,
1: he he was published by random house as well and he was receiving advanced copies of the books and was very very interested in him right from the beginning and thought that he succeeded above all as a writer it was it was his style his sense of structure his interesting point of view just he just saw him as a master already
0: This podcast is a prelude to our discussion, or the the initial discussions, moving into The Orchard Keeper, which is McCarthy's first published novel, appearing in June of 1965, set in small mountain towns outside Knoxville, Tennessee in the early 30s, draws heavily upon its setting, both the matters of the place and the time. With this in mind, Diane, you did seem to be the obvious go-to for help and understanding the background, especially given your book, which we prefaced earlier, reading the world, Cormac McCarthy's Tennessee period, which focuses heavily on the setting and milieu of those first four novels. So here's my first question. Does a reader need to know about the Tennessee at this time, or is it just that it's very helpful without being essential?
1: I think that McCarthy probably hopes that his reader will understand the kinds of issues that he's looking at, you can certainly get a lot out of the book if you don't know it. But there are certain motivational questions for the characters that are answered if you if you understand the cultural and social milieu that they're living in. And I would sort of compare it with a contemporary reader reading Shakespeare. You can read it and you can admire it and get a great deal out of it. But if you understand a little something about Elizabethan England, um, it's going to be a much richer experience, uh, a much more meaningful experience.
0: And so with that in mind, then, please tell us about Tennessee at this time period and, you know, the the era, I guess, preceding and, and around the time of the novel.
1: Okay. One thing to know about Tennessee is that it underwent very, very rapid transformation, moving from the wilderness world to the modern world in about 19 decades. And in the 1930s, when McCarthy's family moved there, um, the people who lived in the mountain region were still living very much the same way as the pioneers had lived in the 19th century. They were self-reliant, forest-dependent people. They tended to raise their own crops and their own meat. They didn't have electricity and running waters. Uh, they relied on wells and, and springs for water. Roads were rather rather primitive. They didn't have telephone communication. They, they might live their entire life just within the mountain communities um, where they had been born. They didn't like to leave their communities. They didn't like the water in other places, especially in the cities. Another thing to know about the East Tennessee history is that this was not the plantation south. Hmm. This was a place in which there was not slavery. There aren't very many Black people living um, in East Tennessee or at, at the time. There were no plantations. The farmers tended to have very small farms, usually less than 100 acres. And um, very self-sufficient farms. That, and that's especially true of, of Blunt County, where, where this is set. Blunt County was just south of Knoxville, slightly west of the range of the Great Smoky Mountains. And it's kind of a liminal space in the, right. in the books and in actuality. Um, it is rural, but not quite mountain, almost right. mountain. And another thing that's important to know is that East Tennessee was um, loyal to the federal government during the Civil War.
0: Right. And, so, and Knoxville was, interestingly, had been, I guess, uh, it was occupied by the Confederates, then the Federals, and then the Confederates, then the Federals, kind of back kind and of, forth as mm-hmm. the time went mm-hmm. on, right?
1: Yeah. So they had both of those experiences, and they did have the experience of occupation, but... I don't see that coming into the Orchard Keeper as much as some of the other cultural impositions that occurred more right. in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and in fact, some of those um, created a fairly profound sense of betrayal in, in the mountain people. Um, several of them included the the creation of the National Park, which took land away from the people who had been living in the mountains, um, the cultural imperialism of the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, for which McCarthy's father was chief counsel, Right. the excise taxes taxes imposed on home-brewed whiskey, uh, and federal and local efforts to enforce the taxation and, and prohibitions in the state. So all of those, I think, are really fairly important backgrounds for the orchard keeper. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels?
0: Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out The Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives.
1: The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram
0: at Happy Writer Podcast. Absolutely. Now, you've also written about, I think, the railroad kind of carving its way in there.
1: Yeah, the railroad logging industry. that That was the introduction of Northern Industrial Interests, into the southern mountains and um it's important background for ownby because when he leaves his farm that's the employment he can get he he grew up in Tuckaleechee, and in fact there had been logging into indus- industry connected with that area the little river logging company was there but when he marries his wife kind of a shotgun wedding and has to hmm. relocate He moves up to Sevierville, the Sevier area, and um, takes a job helping to dynamite for building the railroads in the mountains. And that railroad logging indirectly led to the creation of the national parks because people were concerned about the loss of the the natural habitat Ah. and the loss of the forests and the the beauty of the forests. They started to recognize that they had a rather rare and unique pocket of wilderness there. Um, and there was some impulse to stop the incursion of the railroad logging, the industrial rail, railroad logging. So it also led to runoff, which increased the flooding problems that the East Tennessee area had been experiencing. You know, they would get, they would get natural runoff every spring with the melting of the of the snowfall. But there wasn't anything left in the land to hold all that moisture once they had skidded the logs and had cleared the land for the railroads. So so those two problems led to further incursions. Um, So the Smoky Mountains National Park, there had been a movement on the North Carolina side of the mountains. And the civic leaders in Knoxville really petitioned to have Tennessee mountain areas included in the national park, because they saw it as a way of increasing tourism and development in the area. But the problem with that is that it wasn't going to affect them in a negative way. Um, They would bring a lot of tourist tourist industry into the area that they would benefit from, but it was the people in the park area who were going to have to give up their lands. And they didn't initially understand that that was what was going to happen. Some of them thought that it would be um, a benefit if it got rid of the logging and brought in better roads. And and so they didn't immediately oppose it, but over a period of about five years as it went on, it became clearer and clearer to the people that not only were they going to be um, included in the park, whether they wanted to or not, but that their land was going to be taken from them by eminent domain. And what made it worse was that this was happening during the depression years.
0: Yeah, already pretty bad.
1: They were bad. (laughs) There was not a lot of employment, although later TVA brought in some employment. um, But Usually, they didn't get enough money from the sale of their lands because it wasn't evaluated very highly. So they were losing all of their history, their family history, their, their sense of personal ties to the mountain land and got a very small amount of money that they then couldn't turn around and um, buy something that would please them as well. So that happened, they, it, it happened gradually, um, the, the parkland was deeded to the federal government in 1934. Some of the people, a very few, were allowed to stay in the park during their natural lifetimes. And one of the people who was granted that opportunity, he had to deed his land over to the government in order to do it, was a man named Lemuel Ownby. Mm. and he's a partial model for Arthur not a really close one but he is someone who was well known in the region when McCarthy grew up there he was the oldest living park resident at that time he had apple orchards he had um starting to sound very familiar (laughs) yes it's it's very much what we see with Arthur's way of life although in The Orchard Keeper, he's displaced from that land, so he's not still living in, in Tukulichi. And another reference in The Orchard Keeper to the displaced people was the family of the Tiptons. You have June Tipton, who is Sildur's friend, and you have Juanita Tipton, the precocious young girl who embarrasses him. And the Tiptons were a very well-known family um, who, was, who were one of the first land-grant families um, after the Revolution. Their ancestor, Fighting Billy Tim- mm-hmm. Tipton, had been given a, a parcel of land in Cates Cove, and that became part of the national park. But all of those people were displaced from the park when the, when the lands were bought up by eminent domain.
0: Operating on a different level of eminent domain, of course, as you've already mentioned, the Tennessee Valley Authority. And as you've told us, McCarthy's father operating as a general counsel in the offices of the Tennessee Valley Authority. And he had even a kind of more nefarious role too, didn't he? Can you tell us about just a- well
1: he did. If you if you're sympathetic to these displaced people, in, in nineteen thirty-five, Congress mandated that the TVA construction a, a construct a navigational channel at least nine feet deep along the entire Tennessee River, starting with the Norris Dam in nineteen thirty six. The Norris Dam was northeast of Knoxville, and that was the property that Cormac McCarthy's father, Charles, was in charge of securing for the TVA. And so he was the chief counsel in charge of acquiring those lands by eminent domain. That made him directly involved in dispossessing and and displacing those people. Um, Now, they did bring in some employment to the region uh, for building the dam. Which might counteract some of the loss of of economic well-being, but about eighty thousand people were displaced during the building of the Norris Dam, and their cemeteries, of course, were going to be flooded, so the cemeteries were were moved and, and mm. displaced as well. The dams, the new, it was a New Deal program, and it had it had some benefits. I mean, the idea was let's take this impoverished area and try to raise it up, improve the economic well-being of the area, um, and they were going to do it by creating this dam system along the Tennessee River to create hydroelectric electric energy because right. there had been no electricity in the area. And they also built nitrate f- fertilizer plants um, run by the electricity, and those fertilizer plants were intended from the beginning to be An industry that could be converted to wartime use to munitions factories during the war. And I think that that's something that resonates interestingly with what McCarthy writes about in Cities of the Plain, where he talks about people in the Southwest being displaced by war and wars, war's machinery. On the other side, critics noted that these changes, while they did bring modernization and some economic well-being, they led to um, a profound change to the culture of the, of the region and to the natu- natural environment, too. One of the river historians that I, that I have read indicates that in order to create in order to prevent flooding and control flooding along the Tennessee River, it basically created a permanent flood in in that
0: river valley. And, of course, how curious and interesting and fascinating that when McCarthy publishes his first novel, it's one that's making these forces of authority, whether it's the Smoky Mountain uh, National Park or the TVA, makes them, you know, kind of the bad guys, you know, pretty straightforwardly, the bad guys, you know, sometimes more personified in the small town uh, cops, we say in in the, uh, in the novel and in in the TVA with his father there. So I think there's a, there's a rich, uh, a rich mind we can dig into there as well. Mm -hmm. So this explains very much about the setting and it very much gives us clear understanding of of Owenby's. Motivations, but what about the other uh, kind of mentor figure, the the man in his you know younger stage of life, Silder, in the novel? Uh, what's going on there, where his character is concerned?
1: Well, I think it's interesting that Sildur, when he comes back to Red Branch, eventually takes a job in one of the fertilizer plants, and it's just dropped in that that's what he's doing. But that's a subtle reference to the the TVA, and when he's working in the plant, he's fired by someone who is sort of an outsider. He's, he's clearly not an East Tennessee native son. He's, he's right. part of the whole official bureaucracy that has come in from the outside. And the characters that the novel really focuses on are very much rebelling against that. But more important for Sildur is his occupation as a blockader, a whiskey blockader. The farmers of the Appalachians had a long history, actually going back to their Scots-Irish ancestors, of resenting excise taxes on whiskey. They would grow their corn and they would feed themselves and they would feed their livestock, but the excess corn could be preserved, saved, even turned into a cash product if they would turn it into whiskey. Right. And so uh, sometimes the taxes on the whiskey were were really punitive for people who didn't have a lot of cash to begin with. Um, Sometimes not even enough cash that they could pay taxes. Hmm. So that was a problem that had already erupted in the U.S. with the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania um, after the after the revolution. And those Scots-Irish settlers came down the Appalachian Mountain Range and settled into North Carolina and Tennessee and the southern Appalachians. Federal prohibition, which started in 1919, had brought federal law agents into the region to break up the stills and to prosecute those who made the made the whiskey and ran it. Um, One of the things that I always wondered about reading this book is, how is it that Silder is still blockading whiskey when prohibition has ended in 1933? And the reason for that is that that was federal prohibition that ended, but Tennessee and local laws still were prohibiting the sale of um, of liquor in in the state, and in fact, Knoxville was a dry city as late as 1961. You could you could not buy hard liquor in in Knoxville that late, which naturally promoted right. <laughs> <laughs> um, whiskey running and speakeasies and. Um, kind of a lawlessness in the, in the
0: city. Well, definitely, definitely put Sutri into context when you realize that uh, all those places are operating without license and without yes. legal authority yes. as well. So we have then as, and it's funny to hear it called blockading rather than bootlegging. Uh, I guess those are two separate. One guy's carrying it there. The other guy's selling it out of the back of his car, perhaps. It um, see, there was between a blockader and a, and I've
1: read, I believe, in Horace Kephart's study of the of the uh, Southern Mountains that blockading was the preferred term there for uh, running whiskey. So silder is a blockader, <laughs> but the Hobie family are the ones who are making the the whiskey.
0: Thank you so much, Diane, for giving us this kind of excellent setup for all of us to dig into the Orchard Keeper we plan on this being a two-part episode because there's a, a lot to get into here before we even start as well. So the, the plan right now is to have you back for our next episode to help us really start understanding a novel and talk about the characters and themes there. So we look forward to having you on our next podcast as well.
1: Thank you, Scott. I really look forward to it.
0: Good. Now, before we let you go, I have to ask you, what is your favorite work of McCarthy's and why? Our first guest, Steve Fry, couldn't narrow it down past three, and I think you were kind of wanting to hold it to two or three too. But can you boil it down to one, or is it a couple?
1: <laughs> I can if you let me do a little bit of a, an introduction.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> I think I could pretty well make a case for almost anything that McCarthy has written being a favorite novel. Maybe, maybe not so much "No Country for Old Men." I might put that sort of at the bottom but McCarthy is such an even writer he he doesn't do bad novels and I would compare it with somebody like Toni Morrison who at her best is just superb but she has lesser novels as well and and right. there's a I think quite a different level between her best writing and and her average writing which is still pretty superb anyway um or someone like Louise Erdrich who um, sure who has one or two just brilliant novels, breathtaking novels like the last miracles of uh, the last reports of the miracles at little no horse. And then many others that are, that are of lesser merit.
0: Or Hemingway who wrote, you know, across the river and ended the Trees. Yes. Yes. You know, and that one, you always worry. That's the one people are going to choose to focus on when they, when they discover Hemingway.
1: So, Having said that, um, that that's, I think, one of the things that makes it really difficult to choose just one McCarthy novel. but um, And I have four that I always name, but I will narrow it down to Sutry. Um, because I think that that may have been McCarthy's favorite. It certainly was the culmination of his work in the Tennessee period. He worked for many, many years on it, honing it, rewriting it, revising it, getting it right. And I think it's a superb accomplishment. Very intricately structured, um, so complex in its structure that it appears to some people not to have a structure or not to have a plot. But it is uh, very carefully structured around repeating. Uh, themes and image patterns, um, uh, the the internal narrative rhymes of the plot, the beautiful language of it. I I probably should not go on and on and and <laughs> leave leave something for your for your podcast on Sutri, but I think that one is my favorite.
0: Well, I did do in graduate school a presentation in an American lit class arguing that the professor had made a mistake but not including that in his American novels of the twentieth century and it informed him it was the you know the best novel written since World War II. Now my my appreciation has grown and moved around but Sutri may well be my my like you guys, I can't on a different day it's a different book. There are mm-hmm. two or three that are never necessarily number one, but they're all significant. Well thanks again to our guest today, Diane Luce, founding member and past president of the Cormac McCarthy Society, the author of many articles on McCarthy and Reading the World, Cormac McCarthy's Tennessee Period. Diane, we so look forward to having you back our next episode to help us dig into the Orchard Keeper and thank you for coming.
1: Thank you, Scott.
0: Thanks again to Thomas Fry, who has composed, performed and produced the music for Reading McCarthy. Special thanks to Kirk Kernut who's been instrumental in helping the technologically challenged host get this podcast up and running. He is, as Elliot says of Pound, El Fabro. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, which is too bad. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com.